Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 98 of History of the Marine Corps, Marine Aviation, Part 2. After World War II, the opinion of using aircraft in the Corps started to change. Studies were conducted on the effectiveness of aviation and concluded that aircraft were vital in combat operations. The Marine Corps began to develop strategies for multiple types of crafts, including helicopters. This episode sums up the history of Marine aviation and we cover accomplishments of Marines during the Korean War, Vietnam, Desert Shield, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we also take a look at a lot of firsts accomplished by Marine pilots. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Marine aviation started to snowball following the end of World War II. The importance of incorporating aircraft into marine tactics became clear during Guadalcanal. After Marines captured Henderson Field, the airfield on Guadalcanal built by the Japanese Empire, it was used as a critical element in destroying Japanese aircraft. There was a myth that Japanese pilots and their Zero fighters were invincible. And although the Grumman Wildcat was the best fighter jet in the Corps, it was still inferior to the Zero compared to the craft's speed and maneuverability. But Marine pilots on Guadalcanal held their own, and they demolished the Japanese Air Force. Over 600 Japanese planes and pilots were destroyed during the Pacific Campaign. Marine aviation losses were 55 dead, 127 wounded, and 85 missing. The future 18th Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Alexander Vandergrift, who commanded the 1st Marine Division during the battle, summed up the importance, quote, We struck at Guadalcanal to halt the advance of the Japanese. We did not know how strong he was, nor do we know his plans. We knew only that he was moving down the island chain and that he had to be stopped. We were as well-trained and as well-armed as time and our peacetime experience allowed us to be. We needed combat to tell us how effective our training, our doctrines, and our weapons had been. We tested them against the enemy, and we found that they worked. From that moment in 1942, the tide turned, and the Japanese never again advanced. Unquote. In August 1944, General Vandergrift, convinced Admiral Nimitz to include Marine squadrons on multiple vessels. 
the Navy activated eight carrier air groups for this effort. After World War II, the first echelon of MAG-31 and aircraft of VMF-441 were sent to Yokosuka from Okinawa to become the first Marine Air to operate in Japan. The Marine Corps' opinion on aviation had changed. A Marine Study Board examined the effectiveness of aviation after the war, and they concluded that the efficiency of aircraft was vital in combat operations. One major realization from the study was the versatility of the helicopter. As a result, policies on aviation underwent several significant changes. The atomic bomb that ended World War II ushered in the atomic age, and solutions were needed to incorporate not only the use of nuclear weapons, but their protection. The Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, Major General Shepard, led the Shepard Board, which focused on amphibious assaults in a nuclear age. Helicopters were recognized as the best solution to protect against threats when transferring atomic weapons from ship to shore. The board recommended an experimental helicopter squadron, appropriately named the Marine Experimental Helicopter Squadron 1, to start work on the operations and design a suitable model for the job. The unit was activated at Quantico on December 1, 1947, and received its first crafts the following year. The work at HMX-1 led to the first doctrine for using helicopters in 1948. FIB-31, Employment of Helicopters. If you want to take a read, I have the document up on historyofthemarinecorps.com under this episode's page. Another significant change was activating the Marine Corps' first jet squadron. On October 24, 1948, VMF-122 was stood up, and World War II ace Major Marion E. Carl was placed in command. Two months before the unit was established, Major Carl set a world 3-kilometer speed record of 650.6 miles per hour in a Douglas Skystreak. The squadron was furnished with Phantoms and stationed at Cherry Point. In November 1949, the first enlisted pilots to fly the Lockheed Shooting Star began transitional training at El Toro. After the North Korean People's Army invaded South Korea, General MacArthur requested support from the Marine Corps. The Joint Chiefs of Staff sent the 1st Marine Brigade to assist, which had its own squadron attached to it. The aviation component consisted of three fighter-bomber squadrons and a light observation squadron. Marine pilots were at the forefront of many milestones during the Korean War. On August 8, 1950, Marines conducted the first night helicopter evacuation of wounded troops when a Sikorsky H-5 of VMO-6 picked up Marines from Qingdong-ni and carried them to Masan. On August 10th, Captain Vivian Moses was shot down and forced to land in the water. In response, the helicopter crew from VMO-6 completed the first Marine helicopter rescue of a downed fighter pilot. On September 18th, Captain Leslie E. Brown flew an Air Force F-80 in the first combat jet mission ever conducted by a Marine pilot. When the 1st Marine Division withdrew from the Chosen Reservoir, a transport plane served as an airborne tactical air direction center, while other transports landed at Haguru-ri to bring in supplies and evacuate any wounded Marines. 
Corsairs also played a pivotal role in guarding the Marines with rockets, napalm, and other ordnance. In September 1951, the Corps started to deploy their new transport helicopter concept. Marine Transport Helicopter Squadron, HMR-161, helped infantry units engage in combat by lifting rocket batteries and moving the Division Reconnaissance Company to the top of a mountain. On July 11th, Major John Bolt Jr. became the first Marine Corps jet ace when he shot down his 5th and 6th MiGs over Korea, bringing his total to 12. By the time the Korean War was over, the first wing had flown 127,496 sorties while losing 436 aircraft. In 1951, the Marine Corps began developing a radar bombing system that they could incorporate into tactics, specifically for amphibious operations. This system was called MPQ-14, and testing in July proved the new system reliable, allowing bombs to be dropped within one mile of friendly lines. A year later, Marines started to use this system in a close support role. A year after that, the Corps trained controllers and technicians for this new technology, and they organized the Marine Air Support Radar Team 1, who worked on this system on a 24-7 basis. The Marines assigned to this unit did their job, and they did their job well. Many of the Corps' accomplishments focus on grunts fighting on the front lines, and rightfully so. Fighting on the front lines often presents extraordinary scenarios, that require extraordinary responses, and many of our best stories involve Marines reacting to these situations. But Marines and other specialties have their moments too. And the ones assigned to Marine Air Support Radar Team 1 demonstrated impressively that the Marine Corps could provide sustained direct air support to frontline troops under all conditions of weather and darkness in the target area. The development of this radar system was the most significant step forward in tactical aviation. After the war, the Marine Corps conducted another study and reviewed the lessons learned in Korea. One of the most considerable lessons was the helicopter's role in warfare. The Marine Corps began to invest more into choppers, financially and tactically. Marine infantry became transportable via helicopter and the development of the heavy-lift aircraft allowed the Corps to transport artillery during combat quickly. Incorporating helicopters into Navy Marine Corps tactics was so pivotal that the U.S. Navy took the escort carrier, Thetis Bay, out of decommission and reconfigured her as a landing platform helicopter carrier. This decision quickly demonstrated its value and led to the reconfiguration of the Boxer, and the Princeton as helicopter carriers, and the construction of a few new ones. On July 16, 1957, Major John Glenn strapped into a Vought F-8 Crusader and took off from Los Alamos Naval Air Station in California. Three hours, 23 minutes, and 8.4 seconds later, he landed at Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn, New York setting a transcontinental speed record of 725.55 miles per hour. This record put him on the radar, no pun intended, for the first class of astronauts. In December of that same year, the USS Princeton traveled to Sri Lanka after rising floods left 150,000 people homeless. 
20 Marine helicopters immediately flew to help people stranded by the flood. Marines flew over 1,100 hours, delivering food and blankets over five days. In June 1958, 1,700 Marines stormed the beaches of Beirut, Lebanon. They were supported by 70 warships, including three aircraft carriers. Marine F-8 Crusaders from VMF-333 were heavily used to support this landing, flying cover from the USS Forrestal. Four years later, the situation in Cuba continued to deteriorate. President Kennedy received intelligence indicating Russians began to place missiles into Cuba, capable of hitting U.S. territory. Marine pilots of Marine Composite Photo Squadron 2 flew photo reconnaissance missions over the suspected missile sites, confirming the presence of rockets. In 1963, the long-range study panel, led by Brigadier General Gordon Gale, assembled and they began discussing what the Corps would be like in 1985. This panel was made up of over 40 government, military, industrial, and academic organizations that contributed to this project. They discussed any political, economic, and sociological issues the Corps will face in 20 years. Lieutenant General Wallace Green Jr. briefed the following to the panel. Quote, we have numerous areas of grave concern, as a society and as a country. History will judge us on the effectiveness of the utilization of all institutions, both public and private, to determine the solutions to our problems. One lesson we should have learned well from ages past is that there is relatively little compassion for those nations that do not vigorously attempt to protect themselves. Rather, it has been demonstrated that survival is a prize earned by those who recognize courage, vigilance, and perseverance. Those who recognize a challenge and overcome it survive. Those who seek to avoid the gauntlet throne, or deny its existence, or temporize, soon fade from the pages of history. Our choice is clear. Unquote. Out of this study came multiple challenges, including population growth, methods of obtaining new troops for the armed forces, the required size and equipment for the Marine Corps, and the impact of automation, data processing, and cybernetics on the Corps. The panel also theorized on the possible enemies the U.S. will have by the mid-80s. One conclusion reached by the panel was, quote, that the ready force of 1985 will be shaped by many factors. Some have already developed, others are just evolving. Others are yet unidentifiable, and are dependent on technological development. The basic conclusion is that the role of the Marine Corps should continue to be that of a versatile force in readiness, primarily identified with the maritime and littoral environments. The primary mission of the Corps will continue to be to provide balanced fleet Marine forces for the projection of power ashore whenever the interests of the United States requires. Unquote. By the end of the year, the Corps developed the short airfield for tactical support. This concept supported the quick construction of airstrips so Marines could operate aircraft through launch and arrest equipment. Think of it as a carrier deck, but on land. The deck is made of aluminum, air transportable, and the basic runway dimensions measures around 2,000 feet by 72 feet. 
The Marine Corps' first operational involvement during the Vietnam War happened on April 15, 1962, when Leathernecks from Marine Medium Helicopter Squadron 362 participated in Operation Shoefly. Their mission was to carry soldiers of the Vietnamese Army into combat. Within three years, half of the Marines assigned to this unit had rotated through Da Nang on tours of duty. The 1st Marine Fighter Attack Squadron arrived in Da Nang in April 1965, and a month later, the advanced echelon of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing established the senior Marine element in Vietnam. By the middle of summer, there were four MAGs in Vietnam. MAG-12 with its A-4s and MAG-36 with their helicopters were in Chu Lai. MAG-11 was at Da Nang and MAG-16 at Marble Mountain. By the time the war was over, one Marine aviator had received the Medal of Honor, Major Stephen W. Pless, a helicopter pilot, who rescued four wounded soldiers stranded on a beach surrounded by heavy enemy fire. Major Pless flew to the scene and found 30 to 50 enemy soldiers in the open. Some of them were bayoneting and beating the soldiers. Pless attacked enemy troops from his helicopter. He fired the rockets and machine guns at such low levels that the aircraft flew through the debris created by the explosions. After seeing one of the wounded soldiers call for help, he maneuvered his helicopter into a position between the wounded man and the enemy, providing a shield that allowed his crew to retrieve the wounded. During the rescue, the enemy directed intense fire at the helicopter and rushed the aircraft repeatedly closing to within a few feet before being beaten back. When the wounded men were aboard, Major Pless flew the helicopter out to sea. Before it became safely airborne, the overloaded craft settled four times into the water. He eventually got the helicopter under control and flew it to safety. Vietnam demonstrated the effectiveness of marine aviation, and after the war, the Marine Corps began looking at how future aircraft could strategically benefit the Corps. Based on the needs of the Corps and the lessons learned in Vietnam, one of the craft that the Corps developed was the Harrier, a strike aircraft with a vertical, short takeoff and landing capability. Lessons learned during Vietnam also led to the F-18 Hornet and the CH-53 Super Stallion helicopter. On September 2, 1990, the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing took command of Marine Aviation Forces in the Persian Gulf as part of Operation Desert Shield. The wing grew to the largest deployed in Marine Corps history. Ten different types of aircraft flew from eight airfield sites that required laying more than 4.5 million square feet of ramps, landing, and taxiing areas. Since the start of Operation Desert Storm, the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing provided more than 18,000 fixed-wing and helicopter sorties in support of one MEF. Marines received a lot of praise and were credited for making a difference in the war. Lieutenant Colonel Richard L. Owens of MALS-14 said, quote, When you talk about aviation logistics, whether it's maintenance, avionics, ordnance, or supply, it is very, very complicated. Funding rules, crossing TICOMs, type commanders for the aircraft, there's one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, with different regulations on how to transfer material. We did all of those things. 
It was a real tribute to the caliber of Marines. We just improvised as we went along, and the Marines were superb. Unquote. Shortly after Kuwait International Airport was secured, General Schwarzkopf summed up the advance made by Marines to General Boomer. Quote, it was another glorious chapter in the history of the Marine Corps. Unquote. During Operation Iraqi Freedom, the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing formed an aviation combat element to better support the ground maneuver element during the quick 23-day march to Baghdad. Marine aviation flew 22% of coalition missions and lost only six rotary aircraft. The 3rd Marine Air Wing deployed more than 15,000 Marines, positioned 435 tactical aircraft at land bases and at sea, offloaded support equipment and inventories in just 45 days, and extended air wing operations over 400 miles from permanent air bases in Kuwait and naval ships in the Persian Gulf. As one MEF pushed towards Baghdad, the wing's Harriers and Hornets patrolled the eastern flanks and kept sizable Iraqi ground units contained and out of the main fight. At the same time, fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters provided close air support for the main effort. The wing's intelligence collection section processed more than 15,000 images from reconnaissance aircraft, and the KC-130 Hercules conducted aerial refueling missions, servicing between 65 and 70 aircraft and delivering an average of 400,000 pounds of fuel each day. They also provided a heavy lift capability. During the war in Afghanistan, in late 2012, the Taliban launched a successful raid at Camp Bastion, an airfield and logistics base, destroying six Harriers and badly damaging two others from Marine Attack Squadron 211. Marine aviation personnel fought back as infantry, a role Marines of the squadron last performed on Wake Island during World War II. All 15 attacking Taliban were killed or captured in the four-hour firefight. Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Rabel and Sergeant Bradley Atwell were killed. In February 2013, the second Marine Air Wing left on their third deployment to Afghanistan. In one year, they completed more than 35,000 manned flight hours and 31,000 unmanned flight hours, covering more than 44,000 square miles of the area of operation. And on September 27, 2018, the Marine Corps F-35 Lightning conducted its first combat strikes in the U.S. Central Command Area of Responsibility in support of Operation Freedom Sentinel in Afghanistan. August 1st will be the 110th anniversary of Lieutenant Alfred A. Cunningham making his first solo flight after only two hours and 40 minutes of training. As we discussed during the last episode, when Cunningham commented on the value of Marine Corps aviation, he said, quote, One of the greatest handicaps which Marine Corps aviation must now overcome is a combination of doubt as to the usefulness, lack of sympathy, and a feeling of doubt on part of some line officers that aviators and aviation enlisted men are not real Marines. Unquote. Cunningham's constant defense of the need for aircraft undoubtedly contributed to a valuable component in the Marine Corps strategic playbook. Aviation has come a long way from its humble beginnings. Thanks for listening. Next week, 
we'll start digging into World War II. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is A Few Bad Men, The True Story of U.S. Marines Ambushed in Afghanistan and Betrayed in America by Major Fred Galvin. This book recounts the story of Marines charged with war crimes they did not commit during their time in Afghanistan. They were falsely accused of murdering innocent Afghan civilians. Galvin was relieved of duty, his unit kicked out of the combat zone, and demonized by the press and Marine leadership when they came home. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help will be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.